you guys are all having a blessed morning. It's good to see everyone. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 1. We're just going to read through the first chapter here this morning. And it reads, Paul, an apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of, the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people." So extremely zealous for, for was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again into Damascus, to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I, didn't, I saw none of the other apostles except James and the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, 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 thank you. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it say, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. So we're going to transition into taking communion together as a church, as a family, and it's a wonderful reminder here that there is no other gospel. There's one gospel. There's one truth, and that comes in the form of Jesus Christ. He is the truth, and today is a day to remember what Jesus has done for us. It's a day to remember that we had separated ourselves from God by sin. And this was all part of the plan, all part of the Father's plan. We had separated ourselves from God, and there, something needed to happen in order for us to be reconciled back to God. There had to be a sacrifice, a perfect, well-pleasing, atoning sacrifice that would cover the sins of the entire world. And that was found through the blood of Jesus Christ that was offer, offered up on that cross 2,000 years ago on our behalf. He went to the cross, he was persecuted, he was tormented, he was spit upon, ridiculed, and he went to that cross because it was the will of the Father for him to do so, and the wrath of God was unleashed onto Jesus Christ on that cross on our behalf. And because of that, he became sin, and the wrath of God was put onto him when it very well should have been put onto us. And instead of us experiencing the wrath of God, he has now given us his perfect righteousness. There was a transfer that was made on that cross when the wrath of God was poured out onto Jesus. Instead of us receiving that, we received the righteousness of Christ. Perfect righteousness because of what Jesus did. And we obtain that through faith in Jesus. As simple as that. It's not by working hard. It's not by being perfect people. It's not by doing all these wonderful things and being these lovely people. It's by faith in Jesus Christ. And today is a day to remember that. So we partake together. We eat of the bread. And we know that Jesus is the bread of life. 
and we drink the cup. We know that the, the cup symbolizes the blood that was poured out on our behalf on that cross. So it's a day to remember what has happened, what Jesus has done on our behalf. Father, we thank you for everything you've done for us, God. And I thank you for offering up your son, Jesus Christ, as the bread of life, that he gives life to us through the sacrifice that was made on that cross on our behalf. Father, thank you for revealing this truth to us through your word, for preserving your word for us and making it known that we have been freed from our sins through faith in Christ. Father, thank you for this bread of life. We love you. In Jesus' name. And Lord, as we take communion here together, we remember the blood that was offered on that cross through the well-pleasing, atoning, perfect sacrifice that was made on our behalf, the blood that was shed. And we, we know that, that Jesus was, he went through <laughs> something we could never comprehend in that moment on that cross when your wrath was poured out onto him and it was your will to crush him and it pleased you to do so that we would be reconciled back to you because you love us. And we acknowledge that. And that's, that's proved through what Jesus did on that cross for us, God. We know that you love us because of that sacrifice, God. So we drink the cup together here this day in remembrance of what Jesus has done. We thank you for your perfect plan of redemption that you've revealed to us, that you've made known to us. Thank you so much, God. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. And let's drink. So it's fitting that Aurora was just talking about Friday the 13th because we're going to get into some spiritual stuff today. So turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And even as I say Ephesians chapter 6, I assume that all your minds are already going somewhere. Because Ephesians 6 is one of those chapters where... Even if someone couldn't tell you a lick about anything else in the letter from cover to cover, they know chapter 6 for some reason, and that is for what? Armor, right? Armor of God, spiritual warfare, all that stuff. Ephesians 6, got my sword of the Spirit, you know? It's like the most running joke ever that, you, you know, you can't leave the house without your sword. <laughs> har, 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 yeah. Ephesians 6, we all know it, and yet do we know it? That is the question. And so today's uh, message for y'all note takers is stand firm. Stand firm. Ephesians 6, we're going to cover verses 10 through 18 if the Lord wills. Everybody there? All right. The armor of God. So this section of scripture deals with a topic that we often call spiritual warfare. And I would submit to you guys that this is one of the most oddly misunderstood topics in the Christian life. I don't know what you've been taught maybe previously or other places online, whatever, concerning this battlefield of the Christian life, but in my own experience, I have found that there is a lot of confusion and mysticism and unhelpful and unbiblical stuff surrounding this topic. There's like a lot of just junk that we got to sort through in order to get this straight. Um, and so when I say the word spiritual warfare, honestly, I don't even know what kind of stuff pops into people's minds. Uh, if it's Harry Potter, you know, casting spells out of a wand or something, uh, incantations, you know, maybe some chanting or I don't even know what, exorcisms maybe, some crazy movies you've seen of people you know, writhing on the ground and doing all kinds of stuff. This is one this time of year, binding spirits that inhabit your neighbor's Halloween decorations, right? You're out there just bam, bam, those giant skeletons you see everywhere. I rebuke you, you know, stuff like that. Just, just slaying the evil spirits. Um, maybe anointing your shoes with oil to repel any orthopedic demons that might try to take your feet captive being a little goofy, but honestly, this is not too far off from some of the stuff that I've, you know, had conversations with people regarding, especially now in the, in the YouTube age. Like, YouTube is an awesome resource, but it's also such a hole of just shenanigans, and so I caution you on the YouTubes. That's my weekly plug for that. Be careful what you're watching, because everyone online is an expert, right? 
not accountable to anyone. They can say whatever they want. There's no repercussions. They don't actually have to care for anyone's lives in actuality. So everyone's a teacher on YouTube. Great. Thanks a lot. So I hope to shed some light this morning on the reality of this invisible war that wages in our lives, that this reality is beautiful, it's powerful, it is sobering, and it is perhaps a lot simpler than we have made it out to be. And so, we will also learn how each of us is to engage in battle and how we can have absolute confidence in the tools that God has given us to wage the spiritual war. So, if y'all are tired or sleepy this morning, wake yourself, because this is probably about as practical of a message as I'm ever going to preach. You can put this into practice in this moment, actually, while you're sitting here, the second you walk out, and every day from henceforth, this is what I do in my daily life to resist the devil. And so this is stuff that is crucial, and uh, we'll get into it. So to begin, I know we turned to chapter 6, I'm not going to turn you everywhere, but I just want you guys to remember that Ephesians chapter 6 is the conclusion to a letter. It is not like a standalone field manual on demon slaying, right? It comes after a bunch of other content. Chapter 6 follows chapters 1 through 5, in which Paul writes concerning a lot of different things, uh, crucial things, important things for the Christian to know, not the least of which is the eternal plan of redemption that he accomplished through Jesus Christ. That's chapters 1 and 2, the election, salvation, and blessing of all his people. Christ's gift to the church, how to walk in light of the new birth, how to be imitators of God as his beloved children, and how to conduct our relationships within the church, within the household, and even slaves to masters, or maybe in the workplace is a more fitting thing for us. And so he's covered all of this up to this point. Even just before this, before our passage in chapter 6, He's talking about wives and husbands and children and parents, and so this isn't just some random, you know, oh, by the way, here's how you, you know, slice and dice the demons that are in your pantry. I don't know. You know, it's just, that's not really what he's getting at here. This is a, this is a natural and practical outflow of what he's already been teaching people, and that's important. The conclusion of the letter, this is where we find ourselves, verse 10, he says, finally, and so this is clearly an important bookend to one of the most awesome letters in all the New Testament. This is something that Paul wants us to pay attention to and to take seriously. This is not one of those passages that we can just read over and go, wow, that sounds cool, and just check out, right? He's giving us the weapons of warfare. And in war, you are only as good as your kit. I mean, if you go out into a modern battlefield with a Swiss army knife, in your boxers, what good are you, right? You, you, you have no confidence in your ability to do what you need to do if you don't have the proper gear. And so what I believe Paul is doing here is preparing his readers and preparing us for reality. The reality that each of us faces because of the incredible truths found in the rest of the book. Because God has chosen us, he has chosen you for salvation because God has made us alive in Christ, because he's brought us near to himself, because he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing, he's redeemed us and made us his own possession, he set aside this heavenly inheritance for us, he adopted us into his own household as sons and daughters, because he's given us boldness and confident access to him through faith in Christ, because all of those things are true of each person that believes in Christ. We are truly beloved by God, and so conversely, we are hated by Satan, right? Satan, the word means adversary. Right? He is our adversary. That's his title. He is the one who opposes God and opposes God's children. He hates us. He hates God. This has been since the very beginning. You guys know Genesis 3. As soon as Adam and Eve fell, God said this to the serpent. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So every offspring of Eve from then until now is at enmity with who? Satan, right? He wants to destroy us. He says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So because we are the objects of God's love and affection, we are 
because of our new nature, at odds with the devil, the adversary. And what he wants to do in your life and all of our lives collectively is rob us of the blessing, the joy, the peace, the comfort, the assurance, and the power that comes from knowing who we actually are. The Christian life is really nothing more than walking out what has already been given to us in Christ, right? You guys understand that. He is righteous, he is holy, he is good, he is pure. He has given us all those things, and now we're just walking in what Christ has already made us to be in God's sight. And so what Satan wants to do is keep us from boldly walking out our identity in Christ. He wants to deceive us, distract us, cause us to despair, fall away, whatever it is. He'll use whatever avenue he can to keep us from setting our eyes on Jesus and running full speed toward the resurrection. You guys got that? Do you see the work of the enemy in your life? Anyone can relate with that? Okay, good. So we all have something to learn here, myself included. And so Paul, as I always say, being a good pastor, right, he doesn't leave his flock unprepared and ignorant of the devil's schemes. He instructs them concerning this battle that the enemy wages against God's elect, and he says to put on the whole armor of God. Not some of it, not half of it, not most of it, the whole armor of God. One commentator said, the Lord offers to us arms for repelling every kind of attack. There remains for us to apply them to use and not leave them hanging on the wall. Which of these things are we leaving hanging on the wall? That's a good thing for us to consider this morning. Which one of these blessed tools are we neglecting to take up against our enemy? And spoiler alert, God's desire in the area of spiritual warfare is no different than any other part of the Christian life. It is looking to Christ by faith. So if, if that's all you get today, then just leave with that. It's really not as complicated or as mysterious or as spooky as we may make it out to be. It is looking to Christ. So verse 10, he says, finally, in conclusion, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So straight away, before even getting into the details of the battlefield, the weapons, any of that stuff, do you notice where Paul says the strength is? Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. He doesn't say, finally, be strong and mighty, because Paul knows as well as anyone that in this arena we simply are not. I hate to break it to you guys, but this is going to be a very humbling set of verses here. And that's a good thing. That'll put us in a position for the power of Christ to rest on us. God forbid we leave this room today with pride in this area, because there is no need for that. Because from cover to cover, the Scripture reminds the people of God that we possess no strength in of ourselves to fight battles. Who is the one that fights battles? He does, right? Over and over and over and over and over and over. We have no strength in ourselves to fight battles, but that he would be the one to fight them for us. It doesn't matter what the battlefield looks like. It doesn't matter what enemy we're facing. It doesn't matter what the circumstances look like, right? It doesn't matter if he saves by few or by many. It is God who wins the victory every time. Amen. We're in 1 Samuel, right? You got uh, Jonathan and his armor bearer just smashing up the hill, just, just murking people. Boom, boom. Jonathan's knocking them down. The armor bearer's making sure they're dead. And they, they killed like 25, I don't remember how many people was it, 25 people? They just massacred them. Two guys. He said, you know what? God may want us to go and have the victory. Let's go. He had no idea what was going to happen or, or confidence in himself. He said, the Lord may give us the victory, and so let's go. Let's do it. God is the one who wins battles. And I believe that is such a relief, Paul's command to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Because we just don't have it. If it's all on us to be strong and mighty, we are in big trouble in this battle. We have already lost. The number one key if you're a note taker, to spiritual warfare is to recognize how feeble 
You really are. I'm going to stoke up all your pride today. The number one key to spiritual warfare is to recognize how feeble you actually are and to put your self-reliance and your understanding and your self-confidence to death. It's of no use in this battle. It's of no use on this battlefield. The Lord said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in what? Weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What does that mean? When I myself, Dan, am weak, Christ is strong. Amen? The degree to which we trust in ourselves and our ability to stand is the measure of how badly we're going to get beat up. I'm going to tell you guys that right now. The level of your self-confidence is the same level of how bad you're going to get crushed in the battle. So wherever that is, let's, let's try to balance the scales out here a little bit. We need strength and might that is outside of ourselves, right? Just like we need righteousness that is outside of ourselves. We need forgiveness that is outside of ourselves. Nobody cares if you forgive yourself. That doesn't mean anything in a courtroom. The judge has to forgive you. We need his forgiveness. We need his righteousness. We need his strength. So where do we go? The armor. Verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Put on the whole armor of God. We'll see in just a moment what that means, but notice a couple of things here, key things. Whose armor is it? God's armor. Is this something that we possess in of ourselves? No, we have to go outside of ourselves and put it on. Is it something we can make or work out or fashion for ourselves? Did he tell us, go become a blacksmith and make yourself some armor? No, put on God's armor. It is not your armor, God forbid. It is not your armor. It's not different for each person according to your t-shirt size and your pants inseam. It is the armor of God, singular, definite, right? There is one. Put on the armor of God. So why do we need it? So that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, again, I'm not going to go too long on this because I'm much more interested in preaching Christ to you than being a discernment ministry about other churches. You know, I'm more concerned with what you guys are doing than what the folks down the street are doing. But there is a lot of nonsense out there. I would call it irresponsible teaching that would basically have Christians believe that they can get in the ring and they can go 10 rounds boxing toe-to-toe with Satan. That is a bad, 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 bad idea. I bind you, Satan. I rebuke you, Satan. I cast you out, Satan. There's a whole lot of I, 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 I in this teaching. It's all about me, and I'm just roughing Satan up, man. Boom, jabs, cross, body shots. Satan's just getting beat. I hope all of you in this room know that you are no match for the devil. I know this is super encouraging stuff, but let me just tell you, if in case you didn't know, the devil is immensely smarter than you. He's been around a long time time. He knows human nature. He is immensely craftier than you. He's got a toolbox as old as the earth itself, right? You, you know, some of you may be pushing, you know, 70, 80, 90. Satan has been around a lot longer than you. He knows a lot more than you. He's been using the same tricks from the beginning, and we still fall for the same things over and over and over. He has temptations and deceptions for every season and for every situation. He's crafty. He is relentless. He doesn't have other things to do. He doesn't have a side job, right? He doesn't have hobbies. He has one mission, and that is to destroy the church of God before he is judged. That's it. 
And so we lack the power and the strength to stand against him and his schemes. And if you're uncertain about that, read verse 12 again. We wrestle against what? Rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What are we going to do against that? Are we going to grab our, you know, Glock off the nightstand and, and put them down? We can't do that. It's impossible. We would be much better off if we had a human enemy to defeat. We'd have a much better chance. This enemy, no chance on our own. The good news is, verse 13, that we absolutely can stand firm. We absolutely can resist the devil. Read with me. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. We can resist the devil by taking up the full armor of God, God's protection, God's armor. Paul is not writing these things to terrify his readers into despair. That's not what he's doing. He's not saying the devil's going to get you and there's nothing you can do about it because he's powerful and you're not. That's not what he's saying at all. He is soberly cautioning them to be prepared to face their adversary, right? If Paul's your leader and he's sending you into battle and he goes, go get him, tiger. What kind of pastor is that, right? You're going to get slaughtered out there. He's giving them the tools they need to walk out the identity that he has just told them is theirs in Christ Jesus. So, like I said, our own armor is about as good as running out into the battlefield in your flippers and your floaty and your water wings with a big sign on your back that says, shoot me. That's what we've got to bring to the table. It's useless, it's foolish, it's unprepared, and it's ineffective. But on the other hand, God's armor is more than sufficient for this task. God's armor is perfect. I don't know if you guys are into war movies, but they always horrify me, especially World War II and, and prior, just because of the sheer carnage and horrific circumstance. I saw a video last night, I, you know, maybe it wasn't the most edifying thing ever, but it was about amputations, you know, pre-revolutionary like war. <sighs> Hardcore, yeah. They, they get the bone saw out, and they literally tie the arteries like a balloon, it was like, ugh, disturbing, disturbing. This is the most, I know, you guys are like, oh my gosh. They tie the arteries literally in a knot. Ugh, it's horrifying. And it makes me think of people that have gone into battle and had their leg all, you know, blown up and had to have it cut off on the field with no anesthesia whatsoever and watch someone literally cut your leg off and it's spurting blood everywhere. I say that for a reason. I say that for a reason. Imagine the terror of marching into that situation in your sweatpants and your slippers. What do you have between you and being on that amputation table bleeding out? Nothing, right? A quarter inch of cotton, you know, polyester mix. You have nothing, right? You have no defense. You're exposed, you're vulnerable, and you are easy prey for the enemy. That's what we look like when we think we're going to run in there and rough up the devil. We're going out in our, in our onesies, guys. That's what we're doing. We're marching out there like a Teletubby thinking we're going to go into battle. But conversely, on the flip side, imagine there was a special suit of armor prepared that you could put on that was indestructible. Indestructible, impervious to all weapons, like Iron Man, okay? Imagine you're in the Revolutionary War and you go out there in the Iron Man suit. That is God's armor if we will put it on. That is the kind of security and boldness and confidence that is ours in Christ if we are clothed in him and if we will heed his word. That's the kind of confidence we can have going into this battle knowing that God has given me everything I need to stand firm. So what does this armor look like? Verse 14, again, he says, stand, therefore. That's the third time. Are you guys catching on? Stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So 
just a, a quick side note on your, your Bible interpretation. Obviously, there is imagery here, and we're going to take the imagery for what it is, but we're not going to get too crazy with the pieces of armor and how they function in ancient warfare. I don't think that's really the point necessarily. Obviously, there's some parallels there, but we don't want to get lost in the weeds. We want to keep the main things the main things. We're not going to study boots and helmets when we could study salvation and faith. Do you understand what I'm saying? So we're not going to get lost. I'm not going to have a PowerPoint of, you know, every piece of armor that a Roman soldier wears. I'm sorry. We're not going to have that much fun today. But what do we begin with? This is the call. Stand firm. Stand. 1 Corinthians 15, be steadfast and immovable. Philippians 1, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 16, be on alert, stand firm in the faith. Philippians 4, stand firm in the Lord. 1 Peter 5, resist the devil firm in your faith. Stand firm. That's what we have to do. Don't be moved from this spot. Don't be moved from this hope. Don't be moved from this gospel. Don't be moved from this salvation. What does James say? We just studied the book. What does he say about the devil? Somebody give it to me. Do what to him? Starts with an R. Ends with Ezis. That's right. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Why? Because if he cannot shake us from our standing in Christ, what does he have left? That's the only trick he's got. That's the only tactic he's got. If we are secure in Christ, the devil can do nothing to us. If we don't allow his lies and his deceptions into our minds, he's powerless. And so the armaments of spiritual warfare are the things by which we stand firm in the faith. That is our defense. They're the things by which we cling to Christ and his salvation in which we are perfectly safe in battle. Amen? Does that make sense? Have I lost you? Still with me? Okay. Verse 14, the belt of truth. It says, gird up your loins, literally. I know that's a phrase that we don't really use, but this is actually helpful. I'm going to quote from you from the Googles. As an idiom, the phrase gird up your loins suggests you should prepare yourself mentally or physically for something that is difficult or challenging. It's like the old-time version of buckle your seatbelts or brace yourselves, right? Buckle up. Gird up your loins. Prepare yourself. The battle of the Christian life is not one of flesh and blood. The battle is where? In the mind. The battle that we fight is a war on truth. It's a war on truth, is it not? Is that not the oldest trick in the book? Did God say? Did God really say? God didn't say. That's it. That's literally all that he has. Did God really say that? Does he really mean that? Do you really believe that? So everything hinges on what God has said. That is the arena of spiritual warfare. It is the arena of truth. Truth. The battlefield in the mind. The battle for truth. 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says, we destroy arguments, right? Not carnal weapons of warfare. We're destroying arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Battle for truth and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That is the goal. War of the mind, taking thoughts captive to obedience to our Lord. God is the one who declares what is true and what is not. He's not saying belt yourself up with your truth because your truth stinks, right? Your truth could be anything. I don't even know. You could think you're a lizard or something. We're talking about God's truth. It's outside of ourselves. Do we go inward or outward for truth? As Bible-believing Christians, where do we go? Outward. Outward. 50-50. <laughs> I know it's worth a shot. If we go inward, what do we find? I'm in there. If we go outward to God's word, we find the source of truth. I don't want to look to myself and my own understanding in this life. Amen? Proverbs chapter 3 Lean not on your own understanding. Be not wise in your own eyes, right? In all your ways, consider him. Whatever God has declared to be true, Satan is going to try to twist into lies and even more dangerous, half-truths. 
Half-truths are his way in. They are Satan's Trojan horse. Half-truths are sneaky. It's one thing for someone to say, Jesus isn't real. You can go, well, history says otherwise. But if someone says, you know, Jesus is God, but he's not quite like God the Father. He's a God. Then you oh, I don't know. There's, there's, a, there's some truth, but there's also untruth. Dangerous. We need to know the truth. We need to know the truth. Satan wants to conform us to the image of this world, disregarding and despising the truth of God, which is why Paul wrote in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of what? Your mind. Not your body. You can't do enough push-ups and pull-ups to defeat Satan. As much as we'd like to try, your mind. Your mind. Prepare your mind for action. That's what he's saying here. That's exactly how Peter frames his first letter. Be sober-minded, be watchful, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Be watchful, be sober-minded, preparing your minds for action. Get this thing ready to go. Use it. The truth is our preparation. Everything that Paul has already laid out in the book of Ephesians the truth concerning Jesus Christ and what he has done and who he has made us to be. That is the truth that Satan is always seeking to destroy. If you haven't believed it, he blinds the eyes of the unbeliever. If you have believed it, he feeds doubt, he distracts, he frustrates. He will do whatever he can do to get our eyes off of the truth. That if we are in Christ, we have everything and we have nothing to fear. That is the truth. That is the true truth. Colossians chapter 2, as I said last week, parallel letter to Ephesians written around the same time. He says in verse 15, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. How amazing is that? Satan does not want us to rest in the truth that God has already won a crushing defeat over the devil and his demons. He beat them decisively, he beat them ultimately, he disarmed them, he took away their power, and he triumphed over them. He says he put them to open shame. You're done for. I've won. In Christ, we have already won the war against the devil. That's the thing that he does not want us to see. His victory is ours by faith. And so put on the belt of truth. You are safe in Christ. The devil has no hold on you. You are victorious in Christ. The devil cannot condemn you. No one can condemn you. When the devil brings lies to our minds, we must be prepared with the truth. Jesus is our champion. When Satan comes to us and says, God doesn't love you, lie. He demonstrated his love at the cross. I read it right here. God doesn't care for you. Look at how much you're suffering. Lie. God is conforming me to the image of his son, and he suffered much, and I am not above my master. You're not a real believer. You keep falling into the same sin over and over and over. Lie. I am saved by grace through faith in Christ. You see how this works? These are the things that he tries to tear us down with. You don't really love God. Look at the way you live your life. Lie. I love him because he first loved me. And that alone... In order to stand, we need to have our minds prepared with the truth. The truth is unchanging. It's unwavering. And so put on the belt of truth. Christ has already won. And he continues, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, this is one that's debated. I'm going to give you my opinion. You don't have to, you know, take it, but... Again, I ask, he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Who is righteousness? Are you going to put on the breastplate of your righteousness to do battle with Satan? There are a lot of very, you know, well-known and godly guys who would teach that. Uh, for me, I'm thinking, that sounds like a bad idea. That sounds like I got something coming. His surname is the accuser of the brethren. He knows how to bury us with guilt and shame and condemnation when we sin. And he knows how to puff us up with pride when we obey. He's got temptations for everything. And so in my opinion, just as surely as this armor is not ours but God's, this righteousness that is our defense is not ours. It is Christ's. 
the breastplate, the piece of armor that protects all the vital organs from being injured, the biggest, strongest piece of armor on the entire body. In order to stand, we must be clothed in righteousness, right? Not just sinlessness, that's not good enough. Righteousness. It's not enough to just have our sins washed. We have to have had obeyed God perfectly and loved him with all of our being and loved our neighbor as ourself perfectly to enter his kingdom. Have we done that? No. So we need the righteousness of Christ that is ours by faith. The breastplate, the covering, the righteousness that does two things. It protects us from Satan's schemes and it protects us from the wrath of God. Because if we're in our own righteousness, we now have two enemies that are fighting against us that are mighty and powerful, and one is a lot scarier than the other. We do not want to be clothed in our own righteousness because Satan comes to us with condemnation. You're guilty. You're not holy. You're not righteous. You're not good enough. You're not worthy. And guess what? On all accounts, is he correct? He is correct. He gets us with the truth of our own situation. We are not holy. We are not righteous. We are not good enough. We are not worthy. Every charge he brings against us, we have no defense for. We cannot stand save the perfection of our Lord Jesus. Amen? That is our whole and only righteousness now and in eternity. I have nothing good to offer God but my faith in Christ and him alone. We look to him. He is our righteousness. Where we once had none, now in him we have all. Romans 3, 21 says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. 1 Corinthians 1, 30, And because of God you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. He is everything. He is all we have, and he is more than enough. We stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and him alone. And that protection, that breastplate, is unbreakable. Because if God has declared us innocent and holy in Christ, if God is the one who justifies, who can condemn? Whose opinion matters? Whose judgment matters when all is said and done? Who has the final say? He does. And so if he says you are blameless because of Christ, nothing that Satan accuses you of can stick. Nothing can hold up in God's courtroom because the decision has already been made. The gavel has been struck. Righteous, innocent, holy, beloved. That's who you are because you are wearing the righteousness of his beloved son. That's our covering. That's our armor. We need to take up his righteousness into battle. I can't stand on my own. I have the righteousness of Christ between me and Satan. Nothing he can do can destroy me. I'm his. I belong to God. Verse 15. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So the call is to stand. It's to hold our ground. It's not to fall or retreat or waver or turn back or run away, but to stand firm. So how can we stand without some kicks to stand on, right? We need something firm to stand in. The readiness given by the gospel of peace, that is our shoes. Those are our combat boots, if you will. What do shoes do? Again, we're not going to get too crazy here, but shoes give us a firm place for our feet to bear down, right? You have grip. You got traction. You have a solid place from which to move. They allow for safe movement. We can traverse over rocks and shards and all kinds of stuff and not have our feet get messed up. They provide readiness, right? You don't leave the house in your socks, right? I mean, I don't know. Maybe you do. I know some kids around here that don't wear shoes. <laughs> I bet you know who they are. <laughs> put your shoes on. You know you're getting ready to head out the door when you put your shoes on. Unless you're a madman who wears shoes in the house, but we're not even going to get into that. Talk to me afterwards. The shoes are one of the last pieces that you suit up with, right? When you're ready to rock, you lace up the shoes, throw on the hat, out the door. The gospel of peace and the readiness it gives are our sure footwear. And again, is this within us or outside of us? It's outside of us. 
There is no safe place to stand and no safe place to take a step if I'm walking in my own shoes. I'm toast. I'm not the one drafting up the battle plans, making the tactics up. I'm too paralyzed with terror to even take a step. I'm the guy hiding behind the rock over there because I don't want to get killed. Right? That's what we look like in battle against Satan. There is only readiness to engage because of the gospel. That's what he's saying. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If we have peace with God, what else is there left to fear? If God is for us, why should we hesitate? Why should we doubt? It's quite the opposite. Now we're ready. If we have the gospel of peace, we are ready. We know that nothing can come against us that God is not sovereign over. We know that we have eternal life. We know that we have access to God. We know we're in his favor and his help and his promises. So where we were once paralyzed with fear, right? Hebrew says enslaved to the fear of death. That's what every person on this earth is trying their best to avoid or delay, right? Put all the creams on, get all the Botox did, make yourself look like you're not dying when in fact you are, right? Everybody wants to make this life as long and as good as they possibly can because they are afraid of dying. Lifelong enslavement to that fear. We've been set free from that. We've been set free from the fear of death. We were once paralyzed by fear. He has set us free through the resurrection. Because Christ rose from the grave, the sting of death has been removed. Because Christ rose from the grave, we have confidence. We have readiness. We're ready to go into battle. What can happen to me? What can harm me if God does not allow it? Amen? What do we have to fear? In the gospel of peace, we're ready to resist the devil. We're ready to face our fears. We're ready to lay our lives down because there's something more important than my life. What, friends, do we have to lose? Jesus has already secured our eternal destiny. We're headed for glory and nothing less. So what do we have to lose? Nothing. This sack of meat that we walk around in, we may lose it. But guess what? God has prepared a glorious one for me that I'm going to live in forever. So Satan wants to take us out of the race. He wants to take us out of the battle. He wants us to go cower on the sideline and not participate in the things of God. The gospel reminds us that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should, what? Walk in them. Not hide in the back in fear. Walk in them. Go. Walk it out. Live it out. Let us go boldly into battle knowing that our Savior reigns and He lives in us and He gives us life and He gives us breath and He gives us everything. And the weaker we are, the more glory He receives by accomplishing the victory in us. The weaker we are, the stronger He is, the more glory He gets, the more His power rests on us. It is a perfect cycle of weakness and strength. Verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So take up the shield of faith. Shield. Crucial, right? You got arrows and swords coming at you. You don't want to be blocking those things with your forearms. You have a shield that keeps attacks from getting to you before they reach your body where you're vulnerable, right? The shield pushes the attacks out away from you. It says here, Satan is, is firing his flaming darts at us. They're like arrows. They come quickly, right? We don't see them coming from a mile away. It's boom, all of a sudden. Where did that thought come from? What just happened there? Where did that temptation come from? Why, where is this perverse, base, disgusting thinking coming from? He shoots them at us. Fiery darts. They come quickly. They come unexpectedly. Not only do they pierce, but they're also on fire, so they stab us, and then they continue to burn us as the fire spreads throughout. This is what the temptations of the devil look like. They penetrate our hearts, and then the fire, the blaze, spreads, consumes everything. His lies, his accusations, his temptations, on and on and on and on. You know what's amazing here? What did Paul say? 
He says, by taking up the shield of faith, you can extinguish what? All the flaming darts of the evil one. All of them. They're just sticking into the shield. It's like a full body shield. You can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. As he fires upon us, we are able to silence his attacks before they even reach us with the shield of faith. So again, emphasis, not on me, not on how good my faith is, not on the amount of my faith, not on the quality of my faith, but on the object of our faith. With eyes of faith set on the author and perfecter, Jesus Christ, we do not need to be subject to any of Satan's enticements. Faith is the summary, basically, of everything we've seen so far. It's a helpless rejection of my own strength and a complete and utter dependence on God and his power to save me and to keep me. That is what faith looks like. Faith allows me to know the truth about myself, that I'm not good, that I'm not strong, that I'm not faithful, and to rest in the fact that he is. He is all those things. His power is perfected in my weakness. He remains faithful when I am faithless. If we're going to stand firm in the faith, we have to abandon any sense that we stand on our own. We walk by faith in the Son of God. And our adversary, the devil, is compared to us, mighty and powerful. We're not equals. But just as we topple and fall over and flounder and flail before Satan, he is nothing in the face of our Redeemer. Nothing. By faith, we can resist him. By faith, we see Jesus victorious in every way that Adam failed and in every way that we fail. Faith. Faith is believing. Believing is seeing. Faith is true sight, right? We look to the things that are eternal. We look to the things that are unseen, not the things that are seen. The things that are seen, the devil's trying to throw at us left and right to get us off course. We look to the things that are unseen, the things that God has said are true. Faith. Unfortunately, the precious shield that we so often leave home in favor of doubt. May the raising of Christ from the dead be enough for us to simply trust him. He rose from the grave. He gives us our marching orders. He says he's protecting us. Let's go. Let's close this out. Verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The helmet of salvation. Apparently the helmet was the last piece to be put on. And obviously it protects the noggin. And so God's salvation is our heads covering in battle. God's salvation. We are saved at the moment of regeneration. We're being saved through sanctification. And we will ultimately be saved in glorification. No one would dare go into war without a helmet right? The head is so crucial and it is so vulnerable to injury. And so the salvation in which we hope is indispensable. If we're going to stand firm, salvation must be in our hearts and minds always. Consider all of its awesome benefits, what God in eternity past graciously purposed to do, what Christ has done through the gospel and the power he is working within us to renew us day by day. These are the things we need to set our minds on if we are going to wage war with the devil. The precious hope of eternity that we cling to. Satan has no hold on me. I know where I'm going. With these things taking first place in our mind's attention, Satan is not going to be able to penetrate your mind with anything that would deter you from running at full speed to the glory that awaits. If I've got my mind set on the salvation of Christ... I don't have time for lies. I don't have time for deceit. I don't have time for temptation. I see him. I see what he's done. I see what he's made me to be, and I see what he has called me to. Holiness and standing firm. And then finally, the sword of the Spirit. There's been much made, as you guys I'm sure know, about the word being the only offensive tool, right? It's the only thing we have to kind of fight back with. Um, but I don't want to get, again, too, too lost in all that. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.8 that uh, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. And so is the breastplate righteousness or is it faith and love? It's, we're not getting too technical here. He's just saying put this stuff on. And so I'm sure it'll preach, you know, the sword of the Spirit. Go get them. But again, 
I just want to remind us that this whole passage really instructs us to fall on the strength and mercy of Christ at every step. So we don't want to get carried away thinking, you know, because uh, we have a Bible that we can just run out the door and just start going bonkers, you know. I just want to caution us all there. Um, yes, Jesus absolutely combated Satan with Scripture in the wilderness. You guys know this. He was succeeding where Adam failed to uphold the Word of God and to keep it. But in order for us to follow in his victory, we need all these other armaments intact as well. And so the whole point of the passage is to put on the whole armor of God, most of which is just defensive stuff. It's, it's armor. It's to keep us from being killed. So, again... Paul is not, is not summoning an army of demon hunters. That's not really what he's saying. He's saying you stand, right? You stand firm. You stand firm. The author of the Hebrews likens the word of God to a sword as well. He says the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so in that context, the word is viewed as a sword that pierces hearts, not necessarily one that we can, you know, chop the devil up with, but it's one that discerns the hearts of people. It's one that pierces. And so the word is many things to us, and apart from the word, we don't really have any of these other pieces of equipment, right? I suppose if I had to choose one thing to go into battle with, it would be what? A weapon, right? If I got to go out in my jammies and I got to take one thing, I'm taking the sword. If I got a helmet and no weapon, what am I going to do? If I got shoes on, great. I can run into death a lot quicker. We need a sword. We need a weapon. And so this really is the all-encompassing portion of this whole thing. This surely, this book is surely the weapon of choice for the believer. Amen? It's nothing that I've got to bring to the table. It's God's word. It encompasses all the other necessary pieces to stand firm. It is the source of truth. It is the declaration of our righteousness before God. It's the written testament of the gospel of peace. It's the means by which faith is produced, right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. It is the word that promises our salvation, that it is the power of God. And so it is only fitting that Paul concludes this list with the word of God the thing that promises and informs all the other pieces of armor. It is the means by which we have this call to arms. It's how we know what Paul wanted us to do. It's the revelation of God to man, and through it we have the knowledge of Christ, and through him all that we need for life and for godliness. As we see here in Ephesians chapter 6, the word of God contains all the things that we need to stand firm in the faith. All that we need to be steadfast and immovable, not ravaged and abused by Satan, but firmly grounded in the finished work and the continuing work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. So stand firm. Stand firm. There is nothing more comforting when you're afraid or weak than to have someone strong by your side. Amen? If you ever remember being scared as a kid and feeling like you were alone, what feeling comes over you when you saw your father? Right? I'm safe. It's peace. I'm, I know I'm, I'm safe because I can see my dad. It doesn't matter what situation it is. If you think you're drowning, you look to the side of the pool and you see your dad's there. Again, given your dad was not a derelict father, you see your dad and you, immediately there's a sense of peace, right? There's a sense of safety, security. How much more as Jesus leads us into a battle that he's already won? We don't have to be afraid because he's with us. We see him resurrected, enthroned, glorified, exalted, seated at God's right hand, and he calls us to take up his armor, to put on Christ, truth, righteousness, gospel, faith, salvation, and the word who was made flesh, the son of God, and to go boldly into this spiritual war that is the Christian life. And you guys can absolutely do that by taking up this armor. And so consider these things. Are you clothing yourself in these things each day? Are you clothed in it right now? Do you know Christ? Do you know his power to save? Do you know the power of this armor? I hope that you do. 
because in it is great safety and great security in our battle against the devil. So there's your workshop on spiritual warfare.